ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Season 2 of Breakdown, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season's program, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder? Go to myajc.com slash breakdown for photos, videos, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. And you went inside that vehicle hours later. Did you notice anything? Yeah, it, it smelled like it was a foul order. Um, it smelled like decomposition or death. I'm saying there's a good chance he didn't smell anything because there wasn't anything to smell. He brings up that he's a guitarist in the church. She responds, quote, but you still exercise the thought of being with someone else when you're married? Hmm. The defendant responds, yep. She then asks him, does your conscience ever kick in? He responds, nope. I'm Bill Rankin. I cover legal affairs for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown and our in-depth examination of the case of Justin Ross Harris. He's now on trial for the murder of his 22-month-old son, Cooper. In fact, jury selection is underway, and the question remains whether 12 impartial jurors can be found in Cobb County. We've told you an awful lot about Harris and his many flaws, but we haven't said much so far about Leanna, ex-wife of Ross, mother of Cooper. Leanna now goes by her maiden name, Leanna Taylor. Her divorce from Ross became final less than two weeks before the trial. Leanna has always been a mysterious figure in this case. And there were things she said early on that made many wonder if she was somehow complicit in Cooper's death. Meet my colleague Christian Boone. He's a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he's covered the Harris case from the beginning. I asked him, how did Ross and Leanna get together? Well, they grew up about a mile and a half from each other in Alabama near Tuscaloosa. Um, Didn't grow up knowing each other, but they were set up and hit it off right from the beginning. Uh, Ross told friend you know, that I'm gonna marry her, and uh, he was persistent, and her friend described it as like they were sort of the target of mean girls, I guess, in high school. Like she had been, you know, social life had not been her first thing because she didn't have much of one, so Ross kind of swept her off her feet, and he was, he was outgoing, she wasn't. She gave him order, which he didn't have, so they sort of fit each other, complement each other well. Leanna has made very few public statements, but you'll be hearing a lot more from her in the upcoming trial. Even though she's recently divorced from her husband, she is also expected to be the star witness for the defense. I think the, uh, Ross Harris can call her and testify as a witness. That's my understanding that's going to happen. That's Lawrence Zimmerman, Leanna's lawyer. I interviewed him shortly before Leanna was granted the divorce. He has had some very strong things to say about how his client has been treated by the police, the prosecution, and that vast, lurking evil, social media. 
If you followed this case, you'll remember that Leanna was at first a tragic figure who had just lost her only child. Then the police seemed to suggest that she might have conspired with her husband to kill her son. And then we saw her on TV, sitting in the courtroom, watching the state make a murder case against him. And then, in that same courtroom, hearing with the rest of the world that Ross had been leading a double life, cheating on her, and trying to hook up with strangers on the Internet. So, in those early days, why did police try to link Leanna with the killing? There are at least four reasons why. First was her reaction at the daycare center. When she went to pick up Cooper that afternoon, the little boy wasn't there. He was already dead in the back of the Harris SUV. Here's Cobb County Police Detective Phil Stoddard at the preliminary hearing. This was the occasion on which authorities began to heap suspicion on Leanna. When she showed up, according to witnesses at the daycare, did she make any uh, comments that were, seemed out of the ordinary? She did. Once she walked into the daycare, she walked back to um, Cooper's classroom where she ran into um, Michelle. And she asked, you know, uh, why are you doing here? And Leanna's like, well, I'm here to pick up Cooper. And, like, Ross never dropped Cooper off. And she's like, just got really calm. She's like, well, I don't know what to do. They walk back out into the lobby, and in front of several witnesses, all of a sudden she states, um, Ross must have left him in the car. And, and they're like, what? There, there's no other, no other reason. It, he, Ross must have, no other explanation, excuse me. Ross must have left him in the car. And they try to console her, and they're like, no, you know, there's a thousand reasons. There. You know, he could have taken him to lunch or something. We, we don't know yet. And she's like, no. That may not be the first thought of most parents, that a spouse had left their child in a hot car. And it seemed suspicious. On the other hand, it was pretty straightforward deductive reasoning on her part. Not long before Leanna arrived at the daycare, her husband had texted her, when are you going to pick up my buddy? Stoddard noted that Leanna then went to her husband's workplace at Home Depot's offices, less than a half a mile away. It was there she made a number of statements to the police. And here comes reason number two, her reaction to the news that her son had just died. Eventually, did she speak with law enforcement back at the treehouse, the place where the defendant worked? She did. Okay. Um, when police spoke with her there, did they say anything of note about her reaction at the scene? Her reaction at the scene, um, she, she didn't show any emotion when they asked her, or actually when they notified her of Cooper's death. Um, she did make a statement that, you know, this was her worst nightmare. And after being told that he was deceased, did she ask to see her son or anything like that? No. Who did she ask to see? She asked to see her husband. So, police took her to headquarters to be with Ross in an interrogation room. But you know, and I know, that they didn't just take her there to console her grieving husband. They had them both in a wired room and were watching and listening in on the conversation. Ross broke down during that exchange, becoming extremely emotional. What was he being emotional about? What was the main thing he was crying about or, or, or sobbing about or whatever he was doing? Oh, it, it was all about him. Um, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe, you know, this happened to me. Why am I being punished for this? Um, and it continued. It was all very one-sided. Did he talk about losing his job? He talked about losing his job. What are we going to do? I'm going to lose my job. I'll be charged with a felony. Did his wife ever say anything to him about what he said to police? She asked him, um, she had him sit down, and he starts going through this, and she looks at him, she's like, well, did you say too much? And there's reason number three. 
Leanna's statement, did you say too much? That could cut two ways. One, it was a generic response to news that your husband was being interrogated by the police. Did you say too much? Or two, it was a strong clue that both Ross and Leanna had something to hide, and she was trying to figure out whether he'd spilled the beans. Reason number four was Leanna's conduct at her son's funeral. My colleague, Christian Boone, attended it. Uh, it was a small church just near the University of Alabama campus in Tuscaloosa. Pretty big crowd. I'd say there was at least about 300 people there. It was uniformly supportive of them. I mean, they were outwardly, you know, showing their support. I mean, not just, you know, there to pay their respects. But when Leanna rose to speak at the service, many people were shocked by what she had to say about the loss of her little boy. She seemed stoic, almost too stoic, for a young mother who was attending her son's funeral. It was like she was uh, delivering a speech to an, an insurance seminar, which is not to be denigrating, but she, there was no emotion. She just sort of talked about Cooper and the things, really the things that he would miss out on, that she was glad that he would miss out on. And I think some of those things reflected her life and some of the sorrows that she had had growing up, just about, you know, waiting for that phone call from a date that didn't come or, you know, not that kind of thing, sitting at home on a Friday night. Ross Harris has been held without bond in the Cobb County Jail since his arrest on the day Cooper died. He was allowed to listen in on the funeral 10 days after Cooper's death from a phone at the jail. In brief remarks, Ross said he was sorry he couldn't be there and that Cooper never did anything to anyone. He was, uh, you know, just weeping basically over the phone, um, lots of emotion, but that sort of plays into the what we were told about them, is that she's the rock, she's the one who keeps things in order, keeps him in line, he's the outgoing one, the one who just sort of puts it all out there. So, I mean, to a degree, that was seen at the funeral with their respective personalities. After the preliminary hearing, Leanna became a pariah in social media. Strangers accused her of being the worst mother in the world. Here's Christian again. Well, you know, it's that, what's interesting is you remember, like, in the first week... They were getting tons of support. People were paying money. They had a GoFundMe page that was like a legal defense. And then it started trickling out about the sexting and then, then the hearing. Then, two months after that, only Ross Harris was indicted in Cooper's death. The indictment didn't implicate Leanna in any way, but Stoddard still wouldn't let it go. During another hearing in October 2015, the detective found a way to insinuate that Leanna might have been involved. Here is Ross Harris's lawyer, Maddox Kilgore, questioning Stoddard during that hearing. Probable cause hearing, you also suggested that motive had to do with a conspiracy with his wife, Leanna Harris, that somehow she was involved in Cooper's death. I never said anything. I don't believe I brought Leanna up hardly at all during that thing, during the hearing. Your testimony is then that you did not suggest that. What I'm saying is, we have not found any evidence to suggest that there was conspiracy. Okay. I'll leave it like that. All right. Well, how about leave it like this? There's no evidence at all that Leanne Harris is involved in anything, is there? Circumstantial. That's it. Circumstantial? Circumstantial. Okay. Well, I mean, this is important. The judge has got to decide. You're saying that, you're saying that it's, it's motive uh, because he wanted to be with his friends. And yes, appear. Sir. Okay. But at the same time saying, well, maybe she was involved. And why could not? You tell me. It's your case. Well, if you wanted to guess or you wanted to throw out theories, would it be more likely 
that he would talk to his wife and get her thinking a certain way before he did the crime. All right. you, got no, you got no evidence of anything like that, do you? Once again, the circumstantial stuff that she says that he says match up. Leanna's lawyer, Lawrence Zimmerman, says he can't believe Cobb authorities continue to view his client with suspicion. It's been uh, outrageous. Um, look, you have a mother of a child. She lost her child. I have children. I couldn't imagine anything worse than losing your child. And she was innocent in the entire event. Whether or not Ross is innocent or guilty, I have to believe he's innocent of intentionally doing it, but she had nothing to do with anything. And instead of helping her through the grieving process, they implied she was, and that she had something to do with it because the general public social media picked up on that immediately and started running with that story. It wasn't the poor mother, so sorry. Um, the police talked about her tone, her demeanor, the things she said about the funeral, that Cooper's in a better place, that she was so stoic. It upsets me to this day how she was treated because she's truly a good-hearted, genuine person and sad. She thinks her husband's a good person, he's always been on the up and up as far as she knows. And then he's accused of a crime, and then she's being dragged into it. So it was disgusting. Zimmerman says those assertions by the cops are bogus. Here's his take on Leanna's question to Ross. Did you say too much? She's a very religious person, and you know she's just being strong for Ross, and she just asked him questions. And she was confused as to why he's being accused. So she said, did you say too much? So people took that and said, oh, that means she knew he was going to kill their child. Well, in the context of everything that occurred, that's not what she meant. She just said, did you say too much? Because she's confused. Why is he being accused of a crime? What could he have said? Did he say something that he shouldn't have said? Maybe it came out inartfully. My colleague, Christian Boone, added this possible explanation as well. Well, that could have also been, more likely was her saying, did you open your big mouth again and you know say something that got you in trouble? because Ross had a tendency to kind of exaggerate and, you know, be sort of self-important. And here's what Zimmerman has to say about Leanna's statement that Ross must have left Cooper in the car. The kid wasn't at daycare, wasn't with Ross. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to uh, all of a sudden realize he must have left him in the car, because where else would he be? Right. I mean, he's two. He can't just get up and walk away. So, again, people are taking something she said that was just a logical inference and saying, aha, well, that as well. And here's his slapdown of Detective Stoddard about his continued assertion there is circumstantial evidence against Leanna. Somebody needs to tell him he can't speak like that. You got the evidence, bring it. Bring it. You think she did something? Indict her today. Why haven't you? If you think she did something. Because uh, it'll be the fastest acquittal in the state of Georgia history because there's no evidence she did anything wrong. Leanna's lawyer thinks there's only one reason the police have continued to insinuate that she must have been involved in Cooper's death. But you know why. Because they want to try to hold this over her head to try to scare her from testifying. They're stopping from testifying. Now, if your husband kills your son, accidentally or on purpose, and then you find out he has been a serial adulterer who is sending thousands of text messages to other women, would you want to testify for him or against him? Or 
Maybe just get the hell out of Dodge altogether, leaving him and all that heartache far behind you. Well, Zimmerman says Leanna will take the stand, and here is what he expects her to say. I'm confident she'll tell the truth about her relationship with her husband and how he was as a father. I don't know what else she could say. I don't think she knew much about what he was doing behind other people's closed doors. He was a good father to Cooper, and he loved him. And there's no way that he would intentionally hurt Cooper. She believes that 100%. She's filed for divorce. She doesn't want to be with him anymore. But she believes in his innocence as far as it comes to what happened. Obviously, forget the fact that she's lost her child and she's found all this out, but it's not something she wants to do. But I can say this, she doesn't want Cooper's memory to be that his father intentionally murdered him. Because that means that his father did not love that child. And his father, Ross Harris, according to Leanna, loved that child. Will Leanna's support from the stand be enough to move the jury? Impossible to say. It should also be noted that she has been subpoenaed by the state to testify. But if her testimony is as strong as Zimmerman predicts, she could be a problem for the prosecution. So prosecutors are giving the jury more than one path toward convicting Ross Harris of murder. Three of them, in fact. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Now it's time for Lesson, lesson, lesson in, in the Law. We've talked a lot about malice murder, the intentional killing of another person. But we also need to talk about felony murder, because Harris is charged with that, too. He actually faces two counts of felony murder. One of them is very similar to the malice murder case. In fact, if the jury convicts Harris of malice murder, I suspect it will convict him of this felony murder count as well. Police charge you with felony murder when a person dies while you're in the act of committing a felony. In felony murder, you'll hear lawyers talking about the underlying felony. In the two felony murder counts against Ross Harris, the underlying felonies are cruelty to children in the first degree and cruelty to children in the second degree. Let's take the first degree first. The indictment of Harris says that he maliciously caused Cooper cruel and excessive physical pain by leaving him alone in a hot motor vehicle. That's cruelty in the first degree, and it's similar to malice murder. That is, you did it on purpose, with malice. Now, to child cruelty in the second degree. The indictment says Harris did, with criminal negligence, cause Cooper cruel and excessive physical pain by leaving him alone in a hot car. So, the difference is intent. The second degree charge means jurors can still convict Harris of murder even if they believe he didn't mean to harm his son. Yeah, that last one really opens up the possibilities for a vengeful jury. Even if he didn't mean to do it, 
he still serves life in prison. So we get malice, right? That's ill intent, an easy if scary concept. Malice means evil. But what about criminal negligence? That's a legal term, and it's complicated. Here's what it comes down to. Reckless or careless conduct that hurts or kills another because you essentially didn't care what would happen and you knew that somebody could get hurt because of your negligence. Let's hear two takes on criminal negligence, one from a prosecutor and one from a defense attorney. Don Samuel is one of the brightest stars in the constellation of Atlanta trial lawyers. Besides representing some of the most high-profile clients in Georgia history, he has also written books on criminal case law. Criminal negligence, unlike civil negligence, requires an awareness of certain facts which would um, almost inevitably result in certain consequences and being heedless of those consequences. So you have to start with the premise that the defendant knows certain facts and then doesn't care about what are such obvious consequences from those facts. And those consequences are either serious injury or death. That's criminal negligence. Let me give you an example. Um, someone is shooting a gun in a, in a very urban area in his backyard. You're just shooting your gun. You have no intention of killing anybody, but you're shooting your gun at tin cans, you're shooting your gun at squirrels. And you know that there's neighborhood children everywhere who play in their own backyards. You have no intention of killing any child, but while you are knowingly shooting your gun, knowingly shooting it in a very urban area, uh, one stray bullet goes and injures or kills a neighbor's child. It is so clear that that's a possibility that it's considered to be criminal negligence. Danny Porter is the district attorney of Gwinnett County in suburban Atlanta. I started covering courts in Gwinnett 25 years ago, and I saw Porter in court a lot. To my mind, I've never seen a prosecutor with more presence in front of a jury. He knows how to make a case, and he knows the law. Criminal negligence was a standard that is somewhere between what we call negligence, which is a failure to follow an accepted duty, and criminal intent, which is you'd have to prove proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So generally, the cases talk about that criminal negligence means a disregard or a gross disregard for the safety or welfare of another. Um, examples of that would be firing a gun into a crowd or, or firing a gun into the air is, is a gross negligence idea that you've created such a danger and your level of, of care for the safety of others is so low that it moves it from regular civil law negligence into, into um, gross negligence. Now remember, Don Samuel is a defense attorney who is trying for acquittals, and Danny Porter is a prosecutor who's trying to convict. So not surprisingly, they don't arrive at the same conclusion when asked whether they think Harris is guilty of criminal negligence. Here's Porter. I think in this case, the facts that have been pub made public almost argue criminal negligence on their own. I mean, you know, you ask the question, what person in their right mind leaves a two-year-old child in a car, in a public parking lot? That in and of itself almost argues for criminal negligence. Then you add in 
distraction that he that the texting and everything made and that he sought out that distraction and all of a sudden you know we're, we're we were at a level at that time where we had kids who were dying in cars the public attention was high the governor had the program you know look in your back seat pay attention and here's this guy who's numbing his brain even further from the regular sort of be careful with your kid duty you have. I think the facts almost argue criminal negligence in and of themselves. Okay, you ready to convict? Here's what Don Samuel says. The facts of this case make it somewhat difficult to ever rely on criminal negligence, it seems to me, because the facts that are known by hypothesis are that he knew the child was in the car, that the windows were closed, and that he was going to work. The inevitability of death or serious bodily injury is obviously true. But the facts in that case, the known facts are clear that it rises to the level of murder. It's malice murder. That's no longer negligence. Nobody in this day and age can leave a child in 90 degree heat in a closed car for five or six or seven or eight hours and, and not say, not only did I only know facts A and B, the fact is you knew Fact C as well. You had to have been intending to kill the child if, in fact, he knew the child was in the car. So I don't find criminal negligence if, in fact, if, in fact, he knew the child is in the car. I don't see that as being criminal negligence. I see that as being murder. If he doesn't know the child is in the car, he forgets or whatever, then you've lost those, those predicate facts that he has to have known in order to create the inevitable consequence. If you don't know the child is in the car, either through forgetfulness or for whatever reason, then you don't have criminal negligence because you don't have the underlying facts. Like the person with the gun in the, in the, in the back of his, in his backyard. If he doesn't know it's a real gun, if he doesn't know it's an, you know, an urban area, if he doesn't know that the gun is shooting real bullets, then you don't have the inevitable injury that you would, um, that, that is so clearly foreseeable. So if he doesn't know the child is in the car for whatever reason, it's not going to be criminal negligence. If he does know the child is in the car, you have murder. In neither event do you have criminal negligence. We've covered malicious intent and criminal negligence. You've got that straight, right? But have you also thought about what this really means? On the one hand, the state is charging Harris with intentionally killing his son. And on the other hand, it's saying he killed his son by accident. That's totally inconsistent, right? How can they do that? Here's Porter again. There's no requirement in Georgia law that you, you present a unified theory of guilt to the jury. What you're allowed to do is charge all offenses that could be charged under the facts. And in fact, they're really not that different because you got to remember the structure of our charging in Georgia is we don't have degrees of murder. We either have malice murder, which is intentional murder, or we have felony murder which is a murder that occurs during the commission of a felony. So what I think they've done is, is strategically, they've allowed the jury two paths to reach the same result, which is the jury could find evidence that he intentionally killed the child. And in that case, they could convict of malice murder. They could also find, or in the alternative find, that 
he was merely criminally negligent. And I, I don't want to use the word merely, but it was less than malice. He was criminally negligent, and the child died as a result of that, and therefore he's guilty of felony murder. So I, I think they've, they've set it up strategically so they give the jury some options under the, when they, how they interpret the evidence as it comes out, which is not uncommon among prosecutors. We do it all the time. It's called charging in the alternative, and prosecutors do it all the time. Imagine that you're Maddox Kilgore, the lead defense attorney for Ross Harris. Okay you got a pretty cool name, but you've also got some serious challenges ahead of you. Every client has flaws. This one has massive inflame-the-jury flaws. By charging Harris with malice murder, the prosecutors will introduce all the evidence they can to show what an awful person Harris is. And as I've told you, there's a mountain of that evidence. So what is the prosecution trying to do? They're trying to prove motive. They're also trying to show with every piece of evidence they have that Harris wanted his son out of the way and that he was capable of making that happen. For this reason, Kilgore has tried long and hard to prevent the jury from ever hearing the most incendiary evidence. Here he is during a hearing earlier this year. Ross Harris is charged with murder. It carries a mandatory life sentence. The case involves the death of a child less than two years of age. The man on trial is his father. The state's discovery that we've received includes no history of neglect, no history of physical abuse, no history of indifference toward his son, no evidence of prior difficulties. The state wishes to introduce evidence of defendants' infidelities and sexual communications and the like over a period of time. And there's nothing about these graphic sexual communications or actions directly connected to the death of Cooper Harris. So it's plainly bad character evidence. Is there really any way that the admission of such graphic sexual information is not substantially outweighed by the unfair prejudice? Can the court really make a finding that Mr. Harris would not be unduly prejudiced on a charge of murder of a child if the jury hears and sees every sexually related indiscretion or graphic sexual activity or communication and filthy languages or images, even if it's not unlawful. Here is lead prosecutor Chuck Boring arguing that the evidence is essential because it proves motive. Through these other acts that we're gonna to have to talk about, I think it's very important to show how extensive this is, to show how important these things were to him as compared to his family. In doing so, some of the general things that we would show through this, one that while the defense pointed out some of the more self-serving statements the defendant would have made about his marriage and things like that, throughout this we would be introducing evidence as well through messages to people he knew, through messages to women that he didn't even know, that he was unhappy in his marriage, that he was unhappy in his sex life, um, that he would not leave Leanna because of Cooper, that he was the thing to keep her, him from leaving, that they were actually in counseling, marriage counseling, uh, statements that he said that he hated being married, that he wanted to be single again, that he wanted to sleep with as many people as possible. The evidence would also show arguments as well. And even up to and on the day and in the minutes before he locked Cooper in that car, he was complaining about his wife complaining about his wife, complaining 
when he wanted to go out with his friends, and then specifically saying that he wanted an escape from Cooper. When lawyers talk about damaging evidence and whether it's admissible, they talk about it two ways. Either the judge lets it in or the judge keeps it out. If the judge admits it, lets it in, then the jury will hear about it. If the judge refuses to admit it, keeps it out, then the jury never hears a word about it. It's as if it didn't happen. As you can imagine, whole cases hinge on whether a judge lets something in or keeps it out. So before a trial begins, you can expect the defense to file motions seeking to suppress the most damaging evidence. The prosecution will argue to let it in, of course, and the result depends on a couple of things. The evidence itself and how it was gathered, but sometimes the biggest and most unpredictable factor is the judge. Who's the judge in the Ross-Harris case? That would be Cobb County Superior Court Judge Mary Staley. Staley is a former prosecutor and is known as one of the most prosecutor-friendly judges in Metro Atlanta. When the defense filed a motion to suppress the most inflammatory evidence against Harris, it seemed likely that Staley would decide to let all the evidence in. And she did. That was a major victory for the prosecution and a tough but expected break for the defense. So let's say your client has committed sexual indiscretion after sexual indiscretion. Let's say the prosecution has evidence of all of them, which it has. What do you do to counteract all that horrible-sounding history? Here's Marietta criminal defense attorney Ashley Merchant. She has closely followed this case. Once the judge determines that this evidence comes in, as a defense lawyer, you have to figure out how do I counteract it. And the best way is to take it full on, embrace it, and try and explain it. And so they've got a very good strategy to try and turn this around and say, you know, this evidence that the state is relying on so heavily, it actually shows something different. You can actually look at it a different way. And so their, their biggest hurdle is going to be getting this jury to keep an open mind, to look at it in two different ways. And these people were, were folks that said, you know, we know him, he would never do this. What do you need from us? How can we help him? These aren't scorned women who think he's a creep. You know, these are women that he knew although he shouldn't have been talking to, but that knew him and are saying he loved his son. Above all else, he loved his son. Merchant wonders whether malice murder is not so much a charge as a strategy. By charging malice murder, prosecutor Chuck Boring can tell the jury all about Harris's endless promiscuity. Even if he can't ultimately prove malice, he still has proved to the jury that Ross Harris is an unsavory character who deserves to be punished for something. Let's say the jury concludes that Harris did not intend to kill his son, but still wants him to pay. It can find him guilty of felony murder by criminal negligence. As we've shown, it has the choice to do that. So, even if he can't show malice, the prosecution still walks away with the win. How big a win? Here's Ashley Merchant again. I think it's going to be very difficult to prove the intent that's required for malice murder, but I think part of the reason that they charged malice murder is so they could get in all of this prior act evidence, this what we used to call similar transactions or prior bad acts. Um, that to get that in, they need to say that they need it to prove motive, to prove malice. And without that charge, that malice murder charge, they'd have a much harder time getting that evidence in, and they need that to prejudice the jury, to get the jury to dislike Ross Harris. They need the jury to hate him. That sentence is life in prison, and Harris would not be eligible for parole until after serving 30 years behind bars. He's now 35 years old. Next, on Breakdown. Even more charges against Harris. 
and the challenges of choosing a jury in such an explosive case. I think the case was going to come down to picking a jury, like most cases do. I mean, that, that's, that's what the OJ case was about. It came down to picking the jury. They got the right venue, uh, and, and they picked the right jury. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, Ross Cabot, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.